Hello, Bante. My name is Jiga. Uh-huh. And uh, I think we can start with the uh, with the subject of fear. I think we can all agree that uh, most of our everyday actions are in some way uh, based in different ways of different uh, kinds of fears. Mm. I often go uh, to the to the root cause, to the origins of every fear. And I think this is my subject view that there should be one uh, one fundamental root cause of all fears we experience every day. So my question is what is this in your uh, view what is this uh, the root cause of those fears and how can we tackle it? Well the root cause is death, fear of death and dying. Every fear culminates that's that's where every fear is rooted. You know, fear of losing possessions, losing loved ones, not getting what you want. It's all fearful because it implies certain uh, end of your life or at least end of your life the way you know it. So you can't tackle it in a sense of to not have it because for as long as you're alive, you're liable to death. And that's why the ultimate contemplation the Buddha was talking about of, of uh, Maranusati so you can't you can't get rid of it. The only thing you can do is develop your mind in regard to it through samadhi, through sila, samadhi, and then through understanding. But in order to do that, uh, you pretty much need to stop ignoring the fact that um, you're gonna die. So when people act in their life towards things, families, ambitions, every single of those actions is underlined by the their mind ignoring their own mortality. They never think that I might not even live to see the end of this because other, because the life will become quite unpleasant and that's, that's, uh, that's an inevitable step. Unless you admit the unpleasantness of life condemned to death, you cannot develop your mind towards death correctly the way the Buddha was teaching. So the first step is to develop very strict virtue Sense restraint and keep the precepts because otherwise the mind probably will not be able to bear it if that's the direction you want to go and contemplate. Okay, thank you. Uh, then another sure. question it's from Raymond How to calm the mind, especially when we are in distress and we fail to cut the flow of thought? Even observing breathing does not help. I would be happy for practical solution. Uh, you calm your mind when you're distressed by calming your mind before you get distressed. So don't wait till you're distressed to start calming your mind. The only reason your mind is not calm when you're distressed is because you haven't cultivated calmness when you were not distressed. So before distress comes your way, and it will, one way or the other, uh, start restraining and not acting out of pressures towards pleasure, towards avoiding pain, endure that, and that's already preparing you for when distress or any other stress comes, you will already have a ground for not resisting it blindly and spinning out of control. So there is absolutely no samadhi, no calmness, without the basis of virtue and precepts. It's absolutely not negotiable. 
So if, if a person doesn't doesn't keep precepts or not so strictly or not really committed to them or sometimes yes, sometimes no, well, <clears throat> that's the type of samadhi you will have. Sometimes you'll, 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 you'll avoid distress, sometimes you won't, but either way you will be subjected to it. The best way of dealing with distress when it happens. So suppose we were not following your advice. Right, right. So you I haven't followed the advice and now this distress happens and you will follow it in the future, but how to deal with the distress that has happened, endure it. There is no magical, okay. magical fix. Basically, uh, if mind is not strong, the endurance will be unpleasant. If mind is strong, the endurance can be pleasant. doesn't matter what it is. That's like in the suttas when the Buddha would be abused by people, uh, shouted insults at him or something, and then some people noticed, look, the the Tathagata, he, he's getting even brighter and happier when people do that to him, because it just reminds him how free he is. Um, so, if, if person is not developed and distress is there, make sure you don't do anything on account of that distress, that then later you have to deal with. So, endure it, and even if it's like the advice from the suttas, if you, 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 you grit, grit your teeth, uh, press the tongue at, at the top, uh, against the top of the, the, the roof of your mouth and endure it until it passes, and then don't be careless when it disappears. Don't forget that it will come back. It's not going to last forever, that's for sure. It doesn't matter how bad it is. The mind cannot possibly... It, the mind itself will run out of energy to, 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 to spin out of control. So you have to wait till that happens and then start practicing and not be careless again. Is this also part of the practice, enduring it and not getting distracted? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that is the core of the practice. The, as the Buddha said, enduring patiently is the only, it's the foremost and the only type of austerity, you know, endurance that he approves of. It's, it's, it's the austerity that can result actually in, in liberation. So people can endure all sorts of things. People can endure dying out of hunger. People can endure not breathing and whatever else those ascetics were doing, self-torture. But people, what they cannot endure is distress and fear on the mental level without acting out of it. For that, you need wisdom. And if you do it, you will get wisdom. So it was the sutta, I, I don't remember the uh, exact number, but it was basically when this man was talking about types of austerity and which one the, the Tathagata approves of. And he said he done all, he did all of them. He went through it. At one point he stopped breathing and had all this. Like he said, basically, if there are physical pains to be experienced on account of enduring, he has experienced them. And none of that was the right way. And not acting out of, uh, out of craving towards your own feelings. And he said, a person who can endure that... That is the foremost austerity. Nothing else can match that. Even if somebody, you know, I don't know, hangs from the top of a tree, never eats and never drinks water and dies like that or something. That's not even close. And the reason why people do these extreme austerities, by the way, and, and, and endurance says, is because they can't endure their own feelings without acting out of them. So it's easier to double down and jump into it and, and try to deal with it on your own terms. And that's where the ignorance is. You're not in control, and you need to start admitting that and feeling the weight of it. So, uh, related question How to practice sensory restraint in the presence of stimuli uh, does not depend on your will. Understand the restraint of the senses in the sense that, say, you don't eat or listen to music because of the ple pleasure. 
What about when you weren't looking for a pleasant uh, solution, but you still find yourself in it? Say, do you, you eat at a restaurant when there's a good music? When you drive past a very beautiful view? When someone hugs you? I know that by uh, retreating into solitude can minimize how often this happens, but it seems to me that this may fall more into realm of monastic life. Uh, when, when you are in the world, the exposure to some of these things is inevitable. So what you do is you have to rec realize that, well, it's already a compromise. So you can't expect to, to, for your mind to develop as much as it would if you learn how to deal with solitude. Uh, and if you're fine with that compromise, then uh, just make sure to be very careful when you are in control of your circumstances. So when you do have a say, make sure you don't slip up. And then if accident, you know, if somebody hugs you or something, well, it, it won't last for three hours. It's going to be 10 seconds and that's fine. So you can endure it because your mind has been sufficiently withdrawn from it when you were in charge of, of making these choices. So in other words, if when you are in charge of your sense restraint, if you if if you invest effort, proper effort, sufficient effort there, you won't uh, worry as much about all these kind of accidental exposures because the mind will not immediately leap up uh, onto them because it has already created some buffers on through the sense restraint that you practiced beforehand. Okay. Um, hello, my name is Sebastian. Um, I have a question uh, about um, concrete suggestions for a lay follower. Though, so for someone who has decided for some reason, let's just assume at this point that this is uh, the fact of the matter that that person cannot ordain at that particular point. So what would uh? be some concrete suggestions, say, um, taking into account the vicissitudes of contemporary life as to how one could cultivate the virtuous and contemplative life as wisely and efficiently as possible. For instance, how to engage with sexual restraint, with limited food consumption, solitude, having contact with like-minded people, and so on and so forth. So what would be, say, some of your concrete suggestions for someone in a lay setting? How could that person pursue these activities and uh, uh, disciplines um, as efficiently as possible given the circumstances some person can adjust it this way some person can adjust it the other way the point is the adjustment whatever that might be should be about uh, minimizing your exposure to things that will tempt you and pressure you where there is a good likelihood you will give in so sell your TV minimize your internet only use it as a tool when you need it no browsing of the news movies, series, um, read, use it for suttas and studies, um, minimize, if, like, unless you have to go to work where there are other people, then when you don't have to go to work, don't go and socialize just for the sake of distraction. So basically just uh, read about the five precepts or eight precepts and see what you can do to support what those precepts require. And then see where you fail and then improve there. So you have to, as I said in, the, um, in my response to the earlier question, you have to recognize it is already a, a compromise situation. But uh, so you will have to do more of a, like a s side work 
uh, aimed aimed at the, at the managing the circumstances because um, they will tempt you and pressure you. I would have a, an additional question here. Um, it's a very practical one and one that I uh, uh, was curious about for quite some time. In certain Christian traditions, for instance, you would ha you would have lay movements that would um, imitate to a certain degree uh, a monastic lifestyle. So this is something that has emerged in specific times throughout the history where lay people had this feeling or desire to um, to engage into uh, in a lifestyle that that would be similar uh, to to the monastic lifestyle. I was just curious mm. whether in the Theravada tradition there is something of the kind, whether there is, a, say, an institution of sorts uh, that is meant for lay people who would be interested in pursuing, say, the the path of wisdom more intensively. Right without necessarily uh, undergoing the full ordination. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's what the Buddha encouraged to people back in the day that, didn't, that couldn't ordain or that um, disrobed out of weakness or whatever else, to, to at least go back to the monastery and oppose the days, keep the precepts, in other words, behave like monks, at least occasionally, because it's meritorious and it can help your mind, and who knows, maybe it will spur another decision to become a monk again or something. Uh, today, I don't think there is a... I think any monastery, just go and stay in any monastery and you will have to keep the eight precepts and kind of behave like monks. So, yeah, there are many Theravada monasteries, retreat centers where you can go and uh, gonna be, you have to be very restrained, uh, follow the routine and so on. So, so that's about it. Yeah. You just go and become an Anagarika into the monastery. So you're not a monk, but you have to behave like a monk. Like so back, in the, ba back in, in the West, we had to spend, I mean, you go to Asia and I think, in Thailand, you don't even have to be an Anagarika. But in, in, in Europe, we had to be a whole year as an Anagarika. Then a whole year as a novice. And only then we get our Upasampada. So by that time, you'll kind of know if you if you really, you know, you know what to expect and you know if, if you want to do it and if you can't do it. So for two years, you have to, and actually some monasteries even longer, for two to three years before you can you can become a monk. Yeah. I have several questions, but I will try to put it in one. It's quite similar to question before uh, for a lay person. How uh, it is, uh, which is the way to live in this society, which we, I think, can all agree is based on wrong values. Uh, how can we maintain our inner peace? In other words, for example, uh, in this society, you have to, most of the time, you have to struggle to maintain your ego, to protect this ego from bad influences, bad people, and so on. And this can be sometimes uh, very stressful. So, what is your suggestion to keep inner peace or try to? You, you, not, you can't have inner peace in that setting, as simple as that. Household life is crowded and dusty, dirty, full of people with ignorance. So it's, you can't have inner peace. There is a reason that every, every sutta starts like that. So if you truly want complete inner peace, you have to live that life. So if you can't live that life, you have to recognize that you can only have a partial inner peace. And that inner peace comes out of, um, of self-control. 
if you can develop self-control, and you can develop self-control, there were lay people in the suttas that freed themselves from sensuality and ill will, still in that setting. Obviously, they were not as busy, as occupied, and as engaged as somebody who is completely uninterested in any development. So you do need to keep the precepts, protect your environment, they would then protect your precepts, they would then protect your sense restraint. And start developing self-control. So you're going to have to endure a lot of things, one way or the other. As a monk, you have to endure a lot. But you want to stay there, you have to endure a lot. As Yonavira said, existence is a full-time job. It's not just something people, people like to think they just go through. So if you want inner peace, be clear with yourself how much of that peace you want and how much you're willing to compromise on it. And then, uh, yeah, precepts, five precepts, ideally eight precepts, and uh, start developing that self-control through them. And then you will know exactly, you know, when to say no to people and what's fine, what it isn't, because you start developing these criteria of your behavior. But probably the most important thing is to realize it's going to be hard work one way or the other. It is unavoidable. So you want peace, you have to work for it. The more you work for it, the more peace you have. And that's what's, I think, Ajahn Chah. But you give up little, you get a little peace. You work to give up a lot, you get a lot of peace. If you work and give everything up internally, well, you get all the peace. But it doesn't happen magically. There's no magical technique, a recipe, a method. They will then just do the work for you. You can't, be, you can't have it both ways. So you can't be in the world, engage with the world, and at the same time expect to be disengaged from the world and peaceful. It's either or. So that's what I mean. It's a compromise. And you have to see how far you yourself are willing to go in that compromise. Because if you really value the peace, you could already, you know, start tailoring your life and minimizing engagements. It will be work, but then it will pay off later on. You're going to have less less disturbances and so on. If you can't do that, well, ask yourself, why can't you do that? But what stops you? Like, what stops anyone from from leaving the household life honestly speaking at any given second and same <laughs> like I, I say that to the monks like don't don't use the tradition and robes and the environment you live in to keep your monk make sure basically your mind prefers this lifestyle so you go beyond any chance of disrobal on account of sensuality or anything stupid so every time you should ask yourself saying what 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 prevents me from just walking away from whatever I'm doing right now, this very second? What sense of duty have I assumed? So you want to make sure you're clear about it because that's how you will start to value the right things. Not just do them out of sense. Because see, you might actually not be changing your environment sufficiently enough out of some blindly assumed sense of duty that you don't even really have. But you just fear to think about it. So you don't give it up. So now you feel stuck. Oh, I want peace, but I can't give this up. Well, you can't have it both ways. See which one you want more, and then grit your teeth, and you have to endure it. And then maybe, like, if you think solution will present itself later, fine. You have to be patient until then. But again, you have to be honest with yourself and see how much input you yourself have in your own environment. It's not given. You can say no to everything. If there is a good reason to do so. Uh, how to cultivate mindfulness or concentration to the extent that you are aware of your thinking and acting before you do it? And how to recognize habits, thoughts that harm us along the way? 
As I understand it, we should avoid the harmful, that's greed, resistance and delusions. Both greed and resistance are fairly easy to detect. What about delusions? Delusions practically are distractions. So stuff you do to distract yourself through your senses. Not necessarily sensual or not necessarily rooted in ill will. So watching TV, reading news, um, talking to others, if there is no point. That's why often the Buddha would talk a lot about avoiding idle chatter, pointless chatter, and all. It's even incorporated in those practical precepts. Um, so things you would do throughout the day, little activities and so on, just to keep yourself busy, all of that would be cultivating delusion. We, we covered that in that uh, abiding in non-activity talk, I think, or at least part of it. Uh, but the point is, yeah, that is the hardest, obviously, to deal with. But uh, you can certainly start uh, doing something about it on a, on a small scale. So, you know, you're not sensual, you're not angry, but okay, so why don't you just sit with yourself doing nothing? Why do you need to, you know, potter around on your phone or do some work project or read something? Why is that necessary? Why do you depend on the activity of a neutral kind? So it's it's not, as I said, unwholesome in terms of greed or ill will. But you do depend on an external activity that requires your senses. So it is it is distracting in that sense. And that's exactly why delusion is the hardest to see and hardest to uproot, as the Buddha would say. So I also have a question. So... Um, so we are all sort of on the way. So we all practice uh, some sense restraint and probably some sila. Obviously, obviously we are not uh, well as also as lay people, but also probably also as monastics uh, that develop that we can say that we have accomplished already. For instance, the previous steps on the uh, gradual training uh, practice in jhana. Yeah. So does it mean that? In order to start practicing jhana, you need uh, to well uh, to accomplish all the previous steps. Or is it like this that you can start sort of a little bit of practice of jhana even if you are not completely sense restrained and uh, yeah maybe uh, didn't fulfill uh, some other steps completely? Uh, no, no, you have to. You have to have fully developed in virtue. Because they were even in the suttas where the, some monks did have jhanas and then they started slipping in their virtues and then they couldn't get jhanas anymore. Although they knew exactly how and what to do. But their actions undermined them. So it's absolutely not negotiable. And that's, by the way, what jhana is. A full, thorough, complete withdrawal from unwholesome on the basis of your behavior that has been cultivated beforehand of withdrawal from the unwholesome through keeping the precepts, abstaining from sexuality, ill will, uh, pretty much all these things that are rooted in greed and ill will. And that is already the practice of samadhi, by the way. That's why sila, samadhi, and then panya. It's not sila, and now let me go and find what samadhi is. Perfecting your sila is a way of composing yourself rightly, away from the unwholesome states. So you don't have to think like you're not practicing jhana, simply by keeping precepts. You are, actually. You are you are closer to jhana by keeping the precepts than if you are doing your anapanasati without the precepts. It's withdrawing your mind from the um, unwholesome in the world on account of which the pleasure from that withdrawal arises in the first jhana when the mind recognizes, I am safe here. And the, the very first part of that withdrawal is the, the sila and virtue.
not a meditation technique or, or, or something you read you should do in order to get the jhana. Yeah, I, I understand this, but um, and, and nevertheless, should one still uh, practice anapanasati or should one just completely give it up and, I don't know, just do, do nothing as you suggested in one of your talks? Right, right. Well, it depends on your motivation. If you're doing anapanasati because you can't sit still, you're not doing the right anapanasati. You're just trying, fi trying to find something to occupy yourself with. You're being mindless about your own experience, not self-aware. And many people would be doing meditation for that reason, because if they just sit aware, they start to lose their mind. So meditation becomes something to keep you occupied while you're seemingly doing nothing, but you're actually doing a lot. And that's not Anapanasati. Anapanasati, as the Anapanasati Sutta says, well, it first requires the right view. Uh, so you need to have been very accomplished in virtue and understanding of the Dhamma beforehand, and then secondly, it culminates in fulfillment of the four foundations of mindfulness. There is no mention of Anapanasati, boom, experience of jhana, in the actual sutta of Anapanasati that the Buddha was teaching. So that, I'm not, I'm not trying to debate now what leads to jhana or whatever, but that should be enough to just make you question your own view of what jhana is. I don't think we can get into that now. But uh, if, you, if you look into the suttas, you might see that it, it might be slightly different from what you're expecting it to be. And the same reason, like, why do you want to practice jhana? Again, ask yourself. Uh, while you know that maybe you haven't been really fulfilled in all the prerequisites, why do you ask, can I still, why do you want jhana without having developed virtue and everything else? Why do you expect that jhana to give to you? Do you think it will bypass the fact that you haven't developed the virtue? Do you think it will just give you the pleasure that it's nice, so you just want a bit of pleasure before you go back to work? Well, that is sensuality 101. Let me go, let me get some pleasure so I can then go back to work so that I can get more pleasure. And that's not jhana then. So just be clear about your motivation. And while you're clarifying your motivation, why you want jhana, why you want meditation, and so on, what is what is it supposed to accomplish for me? Be clear about all those things. Why you're clarifying those things? Keep practicing virtue and fulfilling those prerequisites that you know you should be fulfilling. Yeah, I can have a question that is somewhat related to what we were just talking about. Um, I would be very grateful if you could perhaps... Um, spend some time talking about the role of reflection and understanding in cultivating the right mindfulness. I think this ties in nicely with what we've just been talking about. Namely, this, there's this idea of um, that is um, very present and prominent in contemporary circles whereby the idea is to cultivate mi mindfulness by merely observing um, merely being aware, so developing Correct. pure awareness that uh, is devoid of all thought and understanding. And then the implicit idea is that you are somehow going to enter into a unique frame or state of mind that will somehow absolve you of all the things that plague you, basically. I mean, I'm oversimplifying here intentionally, but I would say that the implicit premise behind many of the of the contemporary approaches is precisely this and 
whenever one reads suttas, one sees that uh, verbs such as understanding and uh, yeah. thinking and whatnot are present. They are, uh, they are an integral part of the path. But it's also clear that this understanding, this thinking, this knowledge is not, say, a factual propositional knowledge that is often taught in, say, epistemological courses. So, I would be very grateful if you could talk a little bit about the reflection, the role of reflection and understanding in the contemplative path, maybe with concrete examples, so that it is more clear as to how one might integrate it as, um, as uh, efficiently as possible into one's practice. Uh well, before I answer that, we do have that whole playlist on our YouTube channel about meditation, and a lot of those talks address exactly that, you know, the kind of contemporary notions of focusing practices and so on, where, where people try to avoid thinking in the problem, expecting it to magically <clears throat> disappear. And then the idea of samadhi and jhana become extension of that, just I'm focused hard enough on one-pointedness, and then I have this special experience where I'm unaware of myself, and everything has disappeared and was so blissful. So... Not just that that's not mindfulness, that's completely the opposite direction. That, well, that's literally absence of your mind. How can absence of your mind be fullness of your mind, mindful? It's, it's just the opposite direction. Reflection, as um, the role of reflection uh, in the practice of the path, as you said, it's from the beginning till the end. That's pretty much the unifying factor. It is because of your reflection that you recognize the nature of your situation as a layperson. It is because of your reflection that you recognize that there is an option to, you know, leave that, become a monk, or at least get the precepts on. So it is because of your reflection that you adopt the moral set of behavior and the virtue and you start valuing it. It is because of your reflection that you then grow out of your precepts. It is because of your reflection that your mind experiences calmness and composure on account of those precepts. That's your samadhi. And when that has developed, it is because of your reflection you get to understand the complete clarity pretty much of things that need to be understood for the freedom. So that's why Buddha said, you cannot have too much of mindfulness. You cannot have too much of that reflection. So sure, sometimes you can be more actively thinking about things and then sometimes you need to calm down a bit and just drop the subject and calm down and so on. That's kind of the difference between um, Vipassana and Samatha practice. But fundamentally, all is within mindfulness. And uh, the role is, is uh, well, immeasurable. And, and often even, like again, when, the, when lay people would be talking to the Buddha, not even to the monks, he would, he would, all he would do is encourage them to start, you know, questioning. Like, don't go by the tradition, don't go by the, you know, seniority or something. Ask yourself, wait, why do I value this? Why do I hold this? Why do I do this? What do I want from my life? And so on. And the same, and that thing never changes. And and then for a monk who has left that life and lives there, he should keep constantly. Hmm, is there an arisen central lust in me? Is there an arisen ill will in me? Can a non-arisen central lust arise in me? No, he doesn't ask that as some sort of, you know, pointless abstract questions of mantras that he repeats throughout the day, mumbles to himself. No, he really needs to know. Wait, can non-arisen unwholesome states arise in me? I don't know. Well, there you go. That's your work. You need to know. Because not knowing means yes, they can. You're not clear about it. That's how those things arise. So then he diligently sets on to do the work and purifies his state, mind states. You know, first watch of the night, 
third watch of the night and so on. That's what purification is. It's not focusing on the nostril and becoming mindless, completely unaware of everything around you. It's reviewing your mind, not allowing anything unwholesome to be welcomed, delighted in, accepted, not acting out of anything unwholesome, and then contemplating your way out of it through that sense restraint and, uh, and not acting out. And none of that is possible to do if you're not mindful and reflexive. just like to yeah something uh i have a subsequent question that's related to this um why would you say it thoughts and thinking in general nowadays has become so demonized to the point where buddhism for many people is basically identified with non-thinking so this ideal or this idea of thinking being the 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 main culprit of all the sure. existential problems how is this is this maybe you know a, a symptom of the western mind dealing with its own problems and then just projecting them onto onto buddhism or why would right, right. why would the thought be so vilified well i don't know if specifically the western mind but basically it's a symptom of a mind or a symptom of a culture uh, that has proliferated significantly into sensuality so the expectation for quick fix and blaming the external things for problems it's the automatic default behavior <clears throat> and then when sometimes people cannot blame the obvious external things for the problems well the next external thing is my thinking in regard to the problem so then they turn to spirituality, hopefully, and spirituality does offer that because, you know, most of those people believe in the same solutions, as in stop thinking and the problem will disappear. And it's like, well, thinking was never the problem. And that's the whole point. But for as long as you think, ironically enough, that your thinking is the problem, well, you, you're contradicting yourself. Because you can't stop thinking because trying to stop thinking is your own thought. So all you're hoping is basically... Hopefully, sufficiently enough, I can ignore this problem and then it will go away. And that's what people... So that's what I mean. They expect a quick fix. And the quickest fix is block your thoughts from recognizing the problem. Not, hey, my thoughts reveal that problem is there. Let me then deal with the problem. Then regardless of what I think, there will be no problem there. That's too much work now. So it's it's sensuality. It's sensual behavior. And I don't mean like crazy indulgent or something. It's just people depend on their senses things that come through the senses, uh, activities, distractions, and which means every time you engage in that direction, you are losing basis for developing patience, basis for developing endurance, and basis for developing self-reflection. Because this is pleasant and covers any problem up. So why do I need to bother to dig up a wound and feel the pain of it where I can just paste this magical cream and feel nothing and continue with my life? Well, until you can't, and then it's too late to do anything about it. The wound has festered and spread around, and now you're done. But again, the sensuality will prevent you to see that. That's why people don't see the peril in it. So, yeah, blaming thoughts, and that's why, exactly, as I said, meditation practices that are about focusing and not thinking are exactly that. Uh, extension of sensuality like an animal trying to hunt a prey that it really values and it will provide me with satisfaction. So people are trying to hunt the special experience 
they will now provide me with great pleasure and uh, all the disappearances of my problems. That's it. That's what people try. That's why everybody, most people turn to religion for. And it's fine if you turn to the religion for those mistaken reasons, but it's not fine if you never actually start questioning those and hopefully, you know, upgrade your expectations and practice. Like, sensual mind cannot expect enlightenment to be anything other than great sensuality. And that's fine. But it's when you start to do it and learn about it, if you never abandon those sexual expectations, well, then you're just, well, you're not getting anywhere. Yeah, you were just talking about the um, reflection and contemplation practices. So how to get to the root of the problem, how to... Um, so I was just thinking about this. So you recognize the pro that you have a problem, right? And uh, would you say that the correct way of contemplating and meditating upon... Um, that problem of uh, why a certain thing causes desire, aversion, etc. It's not the why, but the uh, breaking it down into the constituent parts, uh, into the five kandas, for example. Uh, no, no, no. That would be basically pretty much an abstract analysis you're doing in order to get rid of the problem. So if you see if you wanna if you see problem of five kandas and so on, you wanna see that from the problem. You don't wanna be putting it into a problem and making it be so. That's what often people oh I reflect this and everything is a Nietzsche and when a Nietzsche comes I look at this. All that is just trying to manage this problem that you can't deal with using Buddhist terminology and so on. You want to recognize that whatever problem is there, first of all, it doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter who. That's like the, the simile the Buddha gave in the suttas, like a man gets shot with an arrow and he's bleeding and it's very painful. But he refuses to deal with bleeding and the pain until he finds out who shot him, why they shot him, what clan was the person that shot him, could have he done something to, to not be... All of that is... And he wastes his time and he bleeds to death. He tries to manage his suffering, provide the satisfying answers to justify suffering, all in order to not deal with the suffering. So that's the first step to recognize is that doesn't matter why, what, what for and who matters is that sooner or later something will bother you, something will arise for you and that's the problem. Doesn't matter where it came from or for what reason. So then you start and that's already the first step to stop blaming the world or trying to justify or psychologize. Oh, this is what happened. So next time I won't do that. All of that is to try to prevent your liability to suffer. The only way you can prevent that is by becoming a fully enlightened person. So you realize it's not about management. It's not about finding the underlying causes or the reasons. It's about accepting the liability to suffering, feeling the suffering here and now, whenever it wants to arise, not trying to prolong it, but not trying to get rid of it either, enduring it, not breaking the precepts on account of it, not distracting yourself with sensuality on account of it, and that will already force your mind to see it for what it is or at least stop turning a blind eye to it. And from there, you will get to, if, if you endure that, that pure dukkha, without a cover-up, without psychologizing, without all these distractions in regard to the dukkha, well, everything else you read in the suttas, we're going to start to make more sense. Because now you actually have a basis for the things that the Buddha was talking about. And that's how your, your contemplation on Dhamma and so on from that abstract level of, oh, this is one aggregate, two aggregates, three aggregates, comes down onto the very concrete level of 
you see it in what you're enduring, not at the expense of and not in regard to get rid of what bothers you. And then, incidentally enough, that will get rid of all the suffering, full understanding. But not through the management, but through what we say uprooting in our talks. And that's the big difference. So you might, your mind might start picking up stuff that you read from the suttas, but make sure you're not motivated by trying to get rid of the suffering. You're not trying to understand it. You're trying to get rid of it with justifications using the information you collected from the suttas. And many people do that, like, oh, yeah, yeah, like, everything is an icha. Yeah, I understand that. Especially when things bother them, they keep repeating the mantra, everything is an icha, everything is an icha. Not because they understood an icha or they see it directly. It's just the mantra helps them dismiss the pain. And that's not the anicca the Buddha was teaching about. You first need to endure things in order to see their anicca. Not apply and paste like your response over them. I think you said. I think you said what I was trying to say. Actually, uh, it's not. No, I didn't mean the uh, abstract breaking it down, but feeling the feeling. Well, uh, sure. Like again, I, I, maybe I used abstract in 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 too uh, concise way. But the point is, if you're trying to even contemplate these aggregates and everything else that you read from the suttas, in order to deal with the pain means you want to get rid of your pain. You're acting out of aversion towards pain. And that's why you will not see the Dhamma. Not because you haven't read the right Sutta. It's because you still cultivate the basic principle of craving that the Dhamma begins with. Aversion towards pain, lusting after pleasure, and ignoring the neutral feeling. So you will inevitably have to start like that. But if you keep your, that's what I mean, if you keep your mind on motivation, why am I doing this? It can become apparent to you that you are trying to contemplate the Dharma because you are still cultivating aversion towards pain. And that's why you cannot get to the Dharma because of that aversion, not because of your insufficient cultivation or contemplation. So suffering needs to be accepted. That's what Buddha said. I teach only two things, suffering and freedom from it. So most people cannot even suffer because they immediately go into the mode of aversion. So whatever they do, even practice, become monks or whatever, is to get rid of the suffering through aversion. So as an ultimate goal, you sure, you want to be free from suffering. That's fine. But how you go about it will determine whether you succeed or not. Is your practice of getting rid still rooted in aversion towards that suffering? Or are you f realizing, okay, I want to get rid, which means now I have to endure suffering for what it is, not try to remove it on my own terms. And that's how you will basically stop acting out of aversion towards suffering. Uh, can you please um, clarify what you mean on your own terms? Yeah, well, that, that's what it is. See, like uh, there, is, there is suffering present, for example, something bothers you. You already by default refuse to accept it. Even if you say I accept this suffering, emotionally you are averse towards it, as the suttas would say. There is aversion there enduring. So whatever you do now, it's rooted in you acting out of that aversion, which means whatever you do will be basically things you want to do in order to remove this which is your averse, but you're not removing your aversion. So that's like you try to do it on your own terms, as opposed to realizing that you must accept the suffering, not try to do anything rooted in aversion, not try to do anything rooted on, in your own terms, and then endure it. See, enduring it is not on your own terms, because you don't want to do it, you're averse to it. 
And if you endure it sufficiently without breaking the precepts or acting out of it, that's what I mean. Stuff you read from the suttas, you start seeing it. You start recognizing it in it. You don't need to be applying it and thinking it actively. It's like, oh, as the suttas would say, it will become apparent. Oh, look, it's there. The only reason I wasn't seeing it because I was too busy acting out of aversion to see it. So that's the difference between doing it on your own terms or enduring it first, which will prevent you to act out on your own terms. Oh, so, question from... Okay. Um, um, Hunter, so I um, um, reflected now a little bit on your, uh, on your answer to my question about Samadhi and Jhana. Um, so, uh, well, I mean... Um, I, what, what if uh, for an individual uh, the uh, well the inability to experience that peace that one probably experiences at retreats uh, leads uh, leads him to abandon the lay life and become a monastic? So is it uh, is it uh, so? It seems to me that this um, experience of of samadhi, even if it is connected with sensuality, uh, can be beneficial for for the progress. So, how, how do you view it? Well, becoming a monk is not a progress in itself. So, if you have a wrong view, it won't change. Even if you wear robes, it doesn't matter. So, progress is if you experience the right peace. Progress is if you're clear from the wrong views. But this desire to, to, for, for peace? Yeah, so, so the, see, the problem, the problem with that is desire for peace is fine. Uh, and it's fine if you go on a retreat and get the best peace you can. But what is not fine is to think, well, this peace stands in place of the right peace. Because then you will not seek what the right peace is. So that's my entire point here. You, you should keep trying to get the peace. Nobody says you shouldn't. But what you must be very careful is when you do so, you might fall into a view that the relative peace you find, since that's the only peace you know, will be conflated with the peace that the Buddha was teaching. And that's not the case. Because otherwise you would be at least the Sotapanna, Anagami or an Arahant. And that's always my point when I say, Oh, but Bhante meditation techniques help me. Well, are you confusing that help for the like fulfillment of the Dhamma? Or are you fully aware that that help is just managing until I find a way how to pull the arrow out, but I never forget that it's pulling off the arrow out that my goal is? And people often do forget that. If you manage your, uh, your your pain, if you find that temporary peace long enough, you will start believing in it. So don't let that happen to you. Like now you might be aware, but if you do start making the effort, or rather the more effort you make towards management, the more risk there is, you're going to start believing that is what the practice is. And because of that, you won't start pushing further to find what the actual practice is. And that's what happens when people go to retreats and have super special peaceful experiences they're just too pleasing to be given up now and somebody comes and tells them that no that's not the peace the peace of understanding is completely different well they'll get upset with that person because of the pleasure of the peace not because they fully understood what that peace was and they know this person is wrong no it's simply threat to the pleasure that they know that's it that's all it takes for you to fall into the wrong view if you're careful if you're transparent about it fine no problem Keep trying at any peace you can get. Just don't lose perspective that peace begins only with sotapati or higher, not with a special experience of your meditation.
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what exactly what what my point was, and also what my understanding is. Yeah. Thank you. And then, so if, if possible, I have another question. Um, so yeah. So we are discussing now very practical things, and, and yeah, and this is yeah, this is very helpful for me. But um, so, but there are some things in Buddhism which I have a really problem with, like. Um, for instance, like belief in rebirths and, and, and things like this, and, and maybe some talks about cosmology that, that Buddha gave. So, uh, what is their attitude towards them for somebody who doesn't have uh, this experience? Don't conflate the two. You might have a problem with those side things, and who knows where those conversations were rooted in and, and what those things meant. You know, like in the Sutta, it says 500 Arahants came and so on. It's just 500 meant it, it was like a like a uh, a common common way of saying many. I'm not I'm not saying that oh the Buddha, the Buddha didn't mean the uh, like future lives and previous lives and and gods. I'm just saying it's never directly related to to four noble truths and freedom from suffering, and that should really be your concern, because if your problem with cosmology prevents you from actually that which you can verify for yourself, which is craving and freedom from suffering in this life, well you'll be at great loss. So take that as something that maybe you can think about later. Don't look for faults on account of which you will avoid doing things you are capable of and you would benefit immensely from. But yeah, you don't need to accept it, by the way. Oh, you must believe. No, you don't. It's never directly related to any relevant sutta, freedom from suffering or anything else. So you realize, yeah, it's not really directly related. And I'm sure there were plenty of people in India at the time they didn't believe in rebirth. They had all sorts of teachers who said, no, this is the only life and so on. And uh, and it was not a requirement. Because why? Because you suffer in this life. You are pressured by your emotions in this life. You don't escape from fear and anxiety in this life. That's all you need to know. And you know, accepting yeah, Buddhist cosmology does not make you more of a Buddhist than if you don't accept it. What makes you more of a Buddhist is if you keep the five precepts, the eight precepts, and apply basically your tireless energy day and night to, to cultivate the Buddha's instruction. That's it. That's what makes you Buddhist. Not your proclamation or belief in, you know, gods and so on. That the Buddha laid out um, in those suttas. And if it bothers you, well, don't let that become a motivation for avoiding things that you can practice in this life, that you can understand for yourself in this life. So endure that bother. In other words, that's what I'm saying. Endurance is pretty much the, 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 the crossroads people come at between either you're going to manage, try to manage and get rid of your suffering, or you're actually going the right way of being able to uproot it eventually and get the right view and so on. It's not blind endurance, it's not focus on your nostrils and endure, it's mindful, full self-awareness, not acting out of greed, aversion or distraction, endurance, the form of austerity that the Buddha talks about. So it is, it's, it's like the basis, the basis for the right practice, for the direction of the right practice. Being able to endure things without acting out. And you probably hear or read me often saying that, not act out. Not act out, rooted in emotions against which you have either aversion or lust or you want to distract yourself from. That's why sila and sense restraint needs to come first as a container because it doesn't matter how much mentally you wish to not act out if your body still ha carries pretty much the habit of acting out you're acting out it's just wishful thinking 
to, to, to believe you're not. Okay, so Subhasi has a question. I have a question about anxiety. Um, we've touched upon this briefly. I would like to um, kind of bring forth this, what seems to be like a dual aspect of anxiety. Now, on the one hand, of course, uh, it seems to be um, um, an unwholesome mental state. But on the other hand, there's something to be said for a potentially beneficial impact and aspect of anxiety. After all, it was existential anxiety that led Buddha on, on his path. It is, it is existential anxiety that Buddha speaks of when he says that monks, everything is burning. It is existential anxiety that you said yourself is sometimes lacking even in among the monastics. So how does one cultivate this existential anxiety, existential dread, this ongoing awareness of, let's say, mortality in the broadest sense of the term? With anxiety, basically. The problem with anxiety is that people want to get rid of it because it's unpleasant. In itself, anxiety is not unwholesome. Anxiety is just basically revealing that there is something that, that, that can still undermine you, that you can still suffer on account of. So anxiety is a mental state. Well, people like to think it's unwholesome because it justifies them trying to get rid of it by any means necessary, you know, including medications and so on. It's not. It's just a recognition of uh, emotional recognition of a symptom of of a, of a problem. That's why anxiety pretty much is sense of urgency that the Buddha would inspire in monks, the ones they got negligent. Um, so, and that's pretty much what what you need to do first. Don't try to get rid of it. Don't try to find the answers for it, but surprise, endure it. Uh, if you if if you wonder how to say like you you can't find your anxiety anymore or it's not coming up, it's either it's only for two reasons: either you became an arahant or you became complacent. If you're an arahant, no problem, you got your answer. If you are complacent, all you need to do, and the anxiety will come back in no time is tighten your sense restraint. And you'll see, it will be there. Fear of death will be there. Just by saying no to sensuality, the first thing that comes knocking is fear of death. And fear of dying, and, and, and dying your loved ones, or whatever else. And that's why people immediately run back. They feel justified. But uh, So whether it's a monk or a layperson, if you don't have anxiety, it means you don't have enough sense restraint. And just think about it. I mean, take an average layman and tell him, how about your... You, you abstain from sexual intercourse for the rest of your life as a demand. If it were to be taken seriously, every single person would freak out at that thought. It would be this intense arising of, of pain and fear at the thought of never experiencing that sensual pleasure ever again. And within no time, they'll be full of anxiety and, and the minds will be just swinging with the moods left and right. So And same for the monks. If there is no anxiety, if there is no sense of urgency, means oh you are you're getting complacent in your environment in your setups or whatever else so you all you need to do is just start saying no to your eyes ears nose mouth touches and so on avoid the the comfort and so on and anxiety will be back fear of death will be back because it just reveals the situation you're still in you are not free from death but if you want to practice with anxiety and cultivate it uh, the basis of virtue is necessary. So it's like an indicator of um, a progression in training. Yeah, it's it's not 
anxiety is not an indicator. It's how much you resist it or not. That's the indicator of your progression. So if you're not resisting it, not trying to justify it, get rid of it, and it's still there, then, yeah, then it's a good indicator that you're doing things rightly. But, yeah, how much anxiety you feel, that doesn't matter. The same reason that, that, um, that people suffer so much and have fears in, in, the, in the first reply is because sensuality is the only means of escape people know, but it's the escape that makes the problem even worse. So it's not really an escape. So you don't try to not have anxiety. You will, most certainly, if you start practicing sense restraint and keeping sila and, and, and so on and enduring solitude. The point is, ah, to train my mind to not resist it with aversion as something I must get rid of. And then it will cease to be unpleasant. It's only unpleasant. Pretty much anything that, any suffering, it's suffering because you are averse towards it, not because it's unpleasant in itself. That's the truth of the first noble truth. Your craving is the root of every suffering, even in those extreme circumstances where, I don't know, highway robbers attack a monk and started hacking him with machetes and so on. The Buddha said, if he has any resistance towards that emotionally, he's not, he hasn't fulfilled my teaching. Because that's never where the suffering is rooted. The extreme discomfort is not the root of dukkha. It's your aversion towards it. Every single time. No exception. So, anxiety is a problem because people are averse towards it. Not because it's a problem in itself. Well, fear is a problem. It's because people are averse towards it. Not because it's a problem in itself. Fear may be just telling you, oh, this is a dangerous situation for my body, for my health, or for something. But it's you being averse emotionally towards it. That's why you suffer on account of all of those mental states. Sure. So I have to say that uh, I, I didn't realize that the necessary connection between uh, increasing sense restraint and incre uh, increasing anxiety. So, um, like, um, I don't know... It's, Let's say if you adopt another another sila or additional sila that to let's say if you um, um, already attend to five or, or eight, um, then I don't know you either either see that you can do it or you see that you cannot do it. And and uh, um, how do you mean that that uh, uh, adding some additional silas is going to to increase your anxiety? So as I said. You will not be experiencing anxiety if you are either fully free from sensuality and almost an arahant, say, uh, or because you're still using means of escape through sensuality. So that's why sensuality, that's what I mean, it's not, sensuality is not so intoxicating for people just because it's pleasant. It's because it's the only form of, like, approximation of an escape that they would know from the unpleasantness of existence in itself. So that's why, as I said, even when people don't necessarily uh, engage with coarse sensuality or real will, just having things to do, needing things to do, depending on activity of the senses, is still your means of escape. So start restraining that. And you will feel anxious because you are refusing to engage with the only direction of escaping the unpleasant pressure or pressure of unresolved existence of, your, of, of yourself. Because if you resolved it, you would be an arahant and there would be no pressure for you. So that's what I mean by sense restraint. Like precepts, sure, that's fine. But now, ask yourself, okay, I'm doing, I'm reading this book. 
Am I self-aware while I'm doing that? Well, not really. Well, then I'll stop reading it. I'll just endure solitude and boredom and see where that takes me. Well, it will take you straight to anxiety every single time unless you have uprooted it. That's why people are terrified of boredom, having nothing to do. And that's, that's pretty much like, say, if you were to put an arahant in a cell without anything, he would not lose his mind because there is no mind to be lost in that sense. He has dealt with it beforehand. So there's nothing for him to lose there. There's nothing for him to resist there. If you, if you lock him in a little box, he will not suffer. He will not experience terror or anxiety because basically he has already abandoned this life. So that's what I mean by increasing sila. Not mean like add some random observances or precepts mechanically as a sense of duty. No, I mean find then other things you do within your good sila and virtue and see why you're doing them and restrain them. Wind yourself up a bit more and you're going to feel anxiety. If you need to. Like, don't do it if you're already full of anxiety. Like, you can have too much of a sense of urgency, as the Buddha would say. So only when you get, oh, am I actually, you know, am I feeling the urgency of practice? I'm not sure. Well, maybe I should restrain myself. Maybe today I will not see, talk to anyone. I will not leave this room. I will not switch TV or phone on. I will just sit alone with myself, which is neutral in itself, by the way. There's nothing bad just sitting with yourself in a room with your own thoughts. Yet nobody can do it. Well, unless people who develop samadhi and then become arahants and so on. So you realize, okay, that's a challenge. And if you go in that direction, as I said, anxiety is guaranteed. Boredom leads to anxiety. Anxiety leads to dread. So you recognize that you cannot deal with it overnight, but you certainly don't adopt the view that it should not be dealt with or you can avoid dealing with it. Because that's where arahantship is. What's the Ajahn Chah? Die before you die. So abandon this life before it abandons you. And you abandon it by completely removing any desire towards it, any lust, any aversion, and so on. Any unwholesome mental state. Uh, I have here one re more re written question from Raymond. Um, maybe you already answered to that question, but I will read. Maybe you have something to add. Uh, how Buddhism understands self or ego. So it's really this identity, self, the biggest enemy, and then how to treat or limit it. Again, when people talk abstractly about it, um, it misses the point. That's why when they ask the Buddha, so Master Gautama says there is no self, and he wouldn't answer it, because it's already wrong assumption. Uh, practically speaking, how you want to go about it is self, identity, ego, whatever you want to call it, it's a symptom of a problem. It's not a problem in itself. So how do you deal with a symptom of a problem? Well, you recognize what it is a symptom of. And the suttas tell us. It's a symptom of greed, aversion, delusion. It's a symptom of not understanding the nature of existence. It's a symptom of ownership, owning things, possessions, uh, acquisitions, as the Buddha talked about, that you acquire through sensuality and pursuit of pleasure that you get through those acquisitions. That's why you have a functioning sense of self there that endures and becomes the owner, the, the appropriator, the controller, the master, and so on. So how do you curb it? Well, sense restraint. Start saying no to your desires. Uh, relinquish unnecessary uh, acquisitions. Don't seek to gain more. Contemplate death. Contemplate um, losing things that are dear to you. And you are curbing your sense of self. And it's going to feel like dying. Because, yeah, the self is dying. 
your identity is ceasing and that's literally going to feel like death because that's what death is cessation of identity that's why arahant cannot die because he has already killed his identity in that sense so death doesn't apply to him and even when the suttas talk about it they say such and such person dies such and such person dies but when arahant dies he doesn't use the word die it says aggregates break apart because death doesn't apply to him death applies when there is still lingering identity so if i understand you my name is raymond if i understand you very well so if i accept death like a normal state of my life then i will be free of any illusions and <laughs> you can't accept it as a matter of choice though because as i said the underlying problem of you not the reason why you don't accept death why you refu- why you fear death that's it that's already a form of non-acceptance is because you're not free from sensual desires you're not free from aversion you're not free from ignoring your own self distracting yourself from yourself the reason why you don't accept death is not because you decided to not accept it so you can decide to accept it but unless you uproot the underlying tendencies of lust, aversion, distraction that feed the actual non-acceptance of it, you will not be free from it. So it's good to accept death, but make sure you don't fall into a trap of like that psychologization, as I say, whereby, yes, I accept death, I'm at peace with it, and then continue with your desires and aversions. That's actually, if you look closely, contradiction in terms. There's just on the level of belief. You, you believe that you accepted death, but you'll be surprised when the actual death comes, you realize how little that acceptance will matter. It only mattered while you were alive, believing that you accepted it. So you don't need to decide to accept death or to decide to not accept death. If you start diminishing your desires, uh, practice sense restraint, and endure not acting out of craving towards your feelings, you are actually freeing yourself from death. However, you know, small steps those might be, you are still going in that direction. That's why some people in the suttas, when they never encountered the Buddha, but they were practicing on their own, and obviously were doing it more or less rightly, when they came across the Buddha, one sentence made him an arahant, fully enlightened, just hearing one instruction from the Buddha. Because they actually did all that work of removing the underlying tendencies because of which they were not enlightened. Then the Buddha just set the pieces right, the pieces that they built and cultivated correctly. So, so you can't just accept it without having had that basis developed and, and cultivated thoroughly and sufficiently. Thank you. Very good answer. Can I put another question? Uh, for example, I'm 52 years old and all my life I had built a house of cart. So it's very hard to me uh, to mm. destroy this house of carts and start a new life. Uh, yeah, so that's been like, it's, you, you will obviously have, you know, fear of death recognition that it's it's coming closer but don't you you can think about it or not it's up to you but recognize that dealing with that problem with that actual fear is in controlling your other behavior towards life it's not like how will i address with this now so that's what women practice before it's too late because now you still can doesn't matter if you're 53 or 63 you still have functioning senses you your faculties of making choices and being transparent in regard to your motivation about those are still there. So use that to start diminishing uh, lust, acting out of lust, acting out of craving, acting out of aversion, enduring it on that emotional level and not giving in, keeping the precepts, 
pretty much what the Buddha advised that king when he said, what would you do if, if there is a man from the east, west, north or south, four men come and tell you there are four great mountains coming your way and those mountains are crushing everything in the way. There is no escape. Every direction you try to run, you just run towards one of the mountains. And he said, well, what is there to do, Lord? I would then be restrained, practice Dhamma, make merit, keep the virtue. You know, that's pretty much the only left thing to do because you can't outrun it. And he says, well, so I'm telling you, there are four mountains crushing you. It's old, and old age and death coming your way. So you better do what you just said you would do in that instance. Uh, so that's what I mean. Whether you think about the mountains and death and how close you are, the way to deal with it is to start being mindful, sense restraint on the level of your day-to-day -day behavior and choices you make in between those reflections. Um, I have one question regarding monastic discipline. So, um, as far as we know, some rules in, in uh, Party Mokha were caused just by, uh, well, just by the m opinions uh, how things should be at the times of the Buddha, for instance, like not, not cutting trees and, and things like this. So, why, why is it important nowadays to to attend to these rules and still keep them? Well, that was the uh, it was actually that happened right after the Buddha died. Uh, Ananda said that uh, oh the, the Lord said we can abandon all these minor rules, and then the Arahant said the Council said well which one were the minor rules according to the Lord, and Venerable Arahant said well I forgot to ask that. So they could have speculated and had a pretty good guess what the minor rule was. But then they said, well, if we do that, the first thing people will say, look, their head teacher died. And the first thing they do is start reducing the amount of rules. So let's keep all of them since it makes no difference. Like the rules that you have to keep that have nothing to do with the Dhamma are not in the way of your practicing the Dhamma. And, uh, and uh, if, uh, like, um, if there are if many of those rules as well, were often like had uh, were qualified in themselves like oh this is an offense unless it's done for this reason or in case of this you can do this but if that's not the case you can't do that so in other words they're quite flexible in themselves so there isn't really any of those rules that would be in the way of you practicing correctly and that's the reason why it's kept just because Ananda forgot to ask and uh, it would have looked bad upon the order and upon the value of Dhamma for those who haven't understood it but might have had chance to understand it. They say, look, I, I don't want to listen to them. The teacher died and they were already disrespecting him. So it was for benefit of others. They still adhere to the rules and we do so. Any more questions? Second time, third time. Thank you very much for your time and for very good answers. Well, have a nice day then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take care. Likewise.